0: Uh, Well, let me uh, welcome uh, those of you um, who are newcomers here particularly, but uh, indeed all of you. It's uh, very, very good to see you here. Um, And uh, now we're going to turn to our Bibles again, uh, to Colossians chapter 4, page 1184 is the uh, page number, as we uh, conclude this series looking through the book of Colossians. And um, you might also like to find one of these. Um, If you like taking notes or if you like to see uh, where the sermon is going, um, then do look out for this handout that I've uh, tucked inside the, um, the service orders uh, for us and you'll be able to see where we're going. Colossians chapter, two, uh, Colossians chapter 4 verses 2 to 6. Uh, a colleague of mine in a church that I used to be involved in told me of a conversation that he had with a professor at King's College London while he was studying for his PhD. The professor, a, a thoughtful and brilliant man but not an evangelical Christian, said to my friend, I've not yet met an evangelical who really believes in hell. He explained, If you really believe in hell, you would tell everyone you meet about the danger they were in. You wouldn't miss an opportunity. You would wake up every day thinking about the urgency to tell people about Jesus. It's a challenging thought, isn't it? Now similarly, the book of Colossians challenges us to evangelism, not because of the doctrine of hell, but because of the doctrine of Christ. See, over these last weeks, we've heard again and again that Christ is everything. Do you remember the setting in Colossae? A group of deceivers had arrived and tried to woo the Christians in the church to move on to, as they would have put it, deeper things. Oh, Jesus is a good start, but we can tell you about the mysteries that go so much deeper, they were saying. And so a verse that's become very familiar to us by now, if you've been coming week after week, chapter 2, verse 18, it seems they bragged about worshipping angels and about spiritual visions, the things they saw, they boasted of deeper spiritual mysteries. And if you've been here over these last weeks, you'll know by now that Paul's response was to these deceivers and his encouragement to the Christians was this, Jesus is everything, you don't need any of these extra experiences. Paul says, if you have Jesus, you can't want anything more, actually. Uh, Just to look back to those great verses that we looked at a few weeks ago, chapter 1, verse 15, Christ is the image of the invisible God. Why do you want to go anywhere else? Chapter 1, verse 16, Christ created everything. So why would you want to turn to anything else or worship anything else when you know the one who made everything else? And there at the end of verse 16, Paul writes that everything was made, you see those two words, for him, for Christ. Everything was made for Christ. The stars, the planets, the flowers, the trees, the elephant and the whale, the kangaroo and the koala, you and me, everything was made for Christ. Everything and everyone. Everyone who walks planet Earth and everyone who ever will walk this tiny green blue planet was made for Christ. Now if we believe that, and that's what the Bible is teaching here, if we believe that, then we must be about the work of evangelism, about telling people about Jesus. Because until they meet him, they will never know the answer to one of life's big questions. And look, there are many big questions in life, but I wonder what you think the biggest one is in Britain today. I want to suggest to you that it's what's the purpose of life? Now, it may be something else, but that seems to be the one that I keep coming up against. The book of Colossians answers that. Chapter 1, verse 16 answers that. One man put it like this. The purpose of life is to find the purpose of life and to make him the purpose of life. Christ is the purpose of life. You and I were made for him. And when we find him, we find life itself. We had in our reading, Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. How cruel then not to tell people about Christ when you found him. How cruel to to watch people scrabble around in life to make sense of their little existence. I'm expecting the global economic uh, downturn to expose how bankrupt people's lives are. Don't you expect that will happen? If we spend our lives trying to acquire more stuff then we will see in this current economic downturn how stuff simply isn't reliable and dependable. Stuff can't satisfy us, and stuff can't save us. Do you see, if we really believe that Christ is everything, then we would be telling everyone about the one for whom they were made. And that, I think, is why Paul ends the letter, well, almost ends the letter, as he does. See, chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, is all about telling others about Jesus Christ. There are just two headings. I've put them on the handout, one on the front, uh, one on the back. Uh, Talking to God about people, verses 2 to 4, and talking to people about God, verses 5 and 6. Firstly, then, talking to God about people. See, here's a surprise when it comes to telling others about Jesus. It begins on our knees. Look at verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Verse 3. And pray for us too. Verse 4. Pray that I may proclaim. Verses that are about telling people about Jesus begin with prayer. Oh, this has really challenged me this week. How much am I praying for my friends who are not Christians? How often do I pray for opportunities to open up for me to tell people about Jesus? Do I ever pray for clarity in my evangelistic conversations? Those are the things Paul prays for or asks for prayer for. And I think the word at the beginning of verse 2 is very strong and really very challenging. Do you see it there? Devote yourselves to prayer. I wonder what you're devoted to. I meet people who are devoted to their lover, devoted to their family, devoted to their career. I even meet people who are devoted to their dog. But it is rare to meet people devoted to prayer. It is rare to meet a church devoted to prayer. Although let me say what an enormous encouragement it was to see so many people at Wednesday's church family prayer evening. I know a good number of people were away for half term and yet I think we had as many almost as we have ever had at our monthly prayer gathering. That was thrilling. And in the light of this Bible passage it is so encouraging. Paul says devote yourselves to prayer. That's the way to make strides into the evangelization of this nation. And what a state the nation is in. Do you feel that? Do you feel it this week? Just think about the co- controversy that has hit the headline this week over the prank on the BBC with, with Jonathan Ross and Russell Brand leaving a lewd telephone message on the answer machine of the actor Andrew Sachs. How low how our nation has fallen. The fact that anyone can begin to think it's funny and acceptable public broadcasting demonstrates what a sorry state we are in, doesn't it? you want to know how far our, 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 our nation has fallen? Well, if you came to the church family prayer meeting, you'll know we were praying about the, the move to lower the age of sex education in schools, and we heard some alarming statistics. The UK has the highest rates of teenage pregnancy, abortion, and sexually transmitted infections on record in Western Europe. Last year, a staggering 4,376 girls under the age of 16 had abortions in this nation our nation is shockingly immoral that's what happens when we don't know the one for whom we were made people are looking for the meaning in life they're looking for it in sex they're looking for it in pranks When we turn away from the one for whom we were made, the one who will give us all we need, the one who will satisfy, we will turn to other things. How we need a mighty change in Britain. That is only going to come about through men and women being converted to Christ. It won't come about through any um, sociological programs or political endeavours. It will come about through one thing, through Jesus Christ being known and people being changed from the inside. And that will only happen through the work of the Holy Spirit what Paul is saying here, devote yourselves to prayer Now if that is to happen then our task is to pray. I'm very excited about this uh, new initiative that we're going to start uh, next year but we're going to have the the launch for on the 19th of November. I'm sure if you've been coming these last weeks you've heard about it 1 plus 1 equals 2,000 if you haven't heard about it come along will you on the 19th of November. It's not just about doubling the congregation it's not just about us having 2,000 people at the end of the year that's not it at all. It's about making a concerted effort for all of us to be proactive in seeing people come to know the one for whom they were made and so i've been thinking about this thing one plus one for over the last months and as i've been thinking about it i've been struck again and again and again the secret behind this initiative is prayer and here it is we need to be devoted to prayer i need to be devoted to prayer and if you're anything like me and you find praying alone difficult we need all the help we can in encouraging us to pray and to be devoted to it it's why it was so good to see so many people coming to the church family prayer meeting. Will you come next time? It's in a month's time, the last Wednesday in November. Come along. Let's have, let's have 200. Let's have 250 next time. Just to show we are devoted to praying. Pray in your home groups. Don't let the, um, you know, the bit where you do the prayer, you do the Bible study and then you do the prayer and you talk about prayer and then you don't actually pray and you have coffee. Don't let that happen. Be devoted to prayer in your home groups. Those of you in prayer triplets, good on you, keep praying. Men, if you want to pray in the mornings, go to the Thursday morning um, uh, prayer meeting uh, with other men before you go to work. Let's be praying. Wouldn't it be fantastic if we were known for being a church family devoted to prayer? That'd be great, wouldn't it? Of course, I don't think we ever will be known that for that because, because we, we should be doing it in private. No one will really know, but it would be good if, if people just got a little glimpse and they thought, they're a praying church. So as we head into 2009, into this vision of doubling the congregation, will we pray? Devoting ourselves to praying for those who aren't Christians. And as we, uh, as we pray, I-, I love those two words in verse 2. Do you see the two words there? Watchful and thankful. Now, firstly, watchful. Jesus tells us to, to watch and pray, doesn't he? Do you remember that phrase? Watch and pray, he says. The Colossians needed to be watchful for the deceivers in their church watch and pray pray with that one eye open if you like having one eye on the situation around us, understanding the spiritual battle that we're in, understanding the culture around us, understanding the situation we're praying into I was sent an email this week of, of a prayer that I'd, that I'd come across some time ago but I was really pleased to be reminded of it because I'd forgotten all about it it was the prayer of a minister from Kansas now, Joe Wright is his name When he was asked to open the new session of the Kansas Senate, he prayed like this. This was some years ago. He prayed like this. Heavenly Father, we come before you today to ask your forgiveness and to seek your direction and guidance. We know your word says, woe to those who call evil good. But that is exactly what we've done. We've lost our spiritual equilibrium and reversed our values. We've exploited the poor and called it the lottery. We've rewarded laziness and called it welfare. We've killed our unborn and called it choice. We've shot abortionists and called it justifiable. We've neglected to discipline our children and called it building self-esteem. We've abused power and called it politics. We've coveted our neighbours' possessions and called it ambition. We've polluted the air with profanity and pornography and called it freedom of speech and expression. We've ridiculed the time-honoured values of our forefathers and called it enlightenment. That's a very powerful prayer, isn't it? That is praying with one eye open, isn't it? Watch and pray. Understanding the spiritual situation around us, understanding the battle we're in. I think Joe Wright understands, doesn't he? Be watchful and then be thankful, we see in verse 2. Be a thankful prayer. Being a thankful prayer spurs you on in your prayers, you see. It's being thankful that will make you devoted. If your prayers, in your prayers, if you are thankful for, uh, for who God is, uh, think about his character. It will spur you on in your praying. His loving kindness and generosity, his mighty power, his compassion and gracious forgiveness. Being thankful for who God is will spur you on to pray. Because you'll know that you're praying to a heavenly father who is able and willing to act in great and gracious ways. It was interesting. It was exactly how Andy and Sarah began their prayers tonight, thinking about the character of God. And as they were praying, I was thinking, yes, that's why we pray, because he's a father and he's sovereign and he's in control. And that spurs me on to pray, doesn't it? Be thankful about the character of God. That will spur you on to pray. Be thankful in remembering answers to prayer. When I think of the way the Lord has answered me, equipped me, the way he has uh, dealt with me in the past when I've asked him for things, the way that he has overruled and brought about what I thought was impossible, it spurs me on to pray more. Be thankful in prayer, you see. When you're thankful in prayer, you want to pray more. That's verse 2. Be thankful, uh, be watchful. And then, uh, if you're still on the handout, uh, over the page, what are we to be praying for? Well, verses 3 and 4 are about proclaiming Christ. Do you see there, verse 3? And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. Throughout this letter, we've seen Jesus is everything. And when we grasp that, we'll want people to know him. You see, Paul only has Jesus on his mind all the time. The deceivers in Colossae were consumed with thoughts of their spiritual experiences. They were devoted to the worship of angels and so on. That's what they'd have been about. If you talk to them, they'd have been really excited about this greatest, latest experience they'd had. Paul, on the other hand, thinks only of Christ. Pray that I'll have a chance to speak about Jesus. He's on his his lips all the time. Paul is determined to make him known. Verse 3, Paul wants to proclaim the mystery of Christ. And so he asks for two prayers. Again, I put them on the sheet there. Verse 3, an open door. And verse 4, for clarity when he gets an opportunity to proclaim Christ. Firstly then, for an open door, verse 3. Pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. Verse 3 is a real surprise, isn't it? Paul was in prison, in chains, as he put it in verse 3. He was in jail, why? Because he proclaimed Jesus. Now, if you or I had been in Paul's situation, I'll tell you what I'd have done. If I'd have been in Paul's situation, in chains, in jail, the only open door I'd have prayed for was an open cell door out of prison, a a sort of spiritual get-out-of-jail-free card, Now Paul may well have been asking for his release here just as in Acts chapter 12 Peter was miraculously set free from prison. Now Paul may have been asking for that but his motivation for freedom is so that he can proclaim Christ the very thing that got him into prison in the first place. That's really striking, isn't it? Is it any wonder that the first century church saw such an explosion in growth? Paul can't stop speaking about Jesus. It's the thing that gets him in trouble. He asked to get out so that he can get in trouble again. Christians were committed to proclaiming Christ whatever the cost in the first century. Again, I'm challenged by it. Here in Britain, we're very unlikely to see this level of persecution. We might do in the future, but not at the moment. And most of us aren't even prepared to put our friendships on the line for Christ. Paul wants to proclaim Christ even though it gets him banged up in prison. And then here's another surprise when you start thinking about verse 3. Paul wants others to believe in Christ even though it may result in them getting thrown in jail because that's what happened when you started proclaiming Christ. Now why on earth would you want to do that to your best friend? Tell them about Jesus so they'll tell others about Jesus so that they'll get put in jail. Why would you want to do that? Because Paul really knows that to believe Christ is better than anything this world can offer. What have we seen throughout this letter? Jesus is everything. And so if I don't have Christ, I have nothing. Paul really believed that. In Paul's mind, to know Christ and to be in chains is better than to be a free person and to be apart from Christ. I wonder if that's how we see life. See, Christian, do you look at the unbelievers around you and do you long for them to know Christ because you know that without Jesus they are not free? Do you believe that when you tell people about Jesus you are doing them a favour? Even if following Jesus will mean that they will have to change their lifestyle, sort out their sexual immoral relationships, redirect their career, adjust the way they spend their money and their time, end social activities that are odds at odds with following Jesus. You, you see, when people become Jesus, you, you can think to yourself, I'm going to wreck their lives. Or do you think, I'm going to give them freedom if I tell them about Jesus? I think too often we we even look at unbelievers uh, with envy. We look at them and think they are free, born free, carefree, free to live as they like, free with sex and money. And Paul doesn't see the unbeliever like that. So he says, uh, uh, pray for an open door for this message. And while we may not be in prison, we too need to pray for open doors, don't we? I wonder if how many of us never get opportunities to proclaim the gospel because we never pray for them. I think of a, a friend of mine, uh, Bernard Palmer is his name. He's uh, uh, one of the guys who's had more influence on my Christian life than anybody else. He is an amazing personal evangelist. He came and spoke uh, here a couple of years ago at a minister's meeting uh, and he said this, The secret of successful personal work is prayer. He challenged us ministers, do you pray each day that you would meet and bump into unbelievers and that when you do, they would, they would be open to talking about Jesus? What a challenge. I look back over those notes when I was preparing this, the notes of the talk that he gave, I thought i would become so slovenly in this. When I used to work in the newspaper business, I would pray every day for opportunities to speak about Jesus and I had many opportunities. What a coincidence. Not a coincidence at all. Is that part of our daily prayer that today the Lord would open up opportunities for us to speak about Jesus? Will we pray that tomorrow morning? Tomorrow morning as we head into our day. Look, hundreds of us. How many are there of us here? 400, 500, I don't know. Hundreds of us going out into Sheffield and around. We could have a magnificent impact just tomorrow. Pray, Lord, give me an opportunity tomorrow to meet unbelievers and to speak of Jesus. Do we ask for that? That's what Paul is doing here in verse 3. He prays for an open door to proclaim Christ. And then verse 4, he prays prays for clarity, that when he gets an opportunity to proclaim Christ, he will speak clearly, verse 4. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. I asked somebody fairly recently, have you had a good day? No, he said, I am so annoyed with myself. I've been praying for a colleague at work for ages and finally he asked me what I believed and I was so surprised I just bungled my way through the next two or three minutes. I said nothing very definite about Jesus. He was kicking himself, poor fellow, And I felt for him because I've done that so many times as well. I've been there so many times and I said to him, well, good on you for having a go. But I'm looking at this and thinking, I wonder what the Apostle Paul would have said to that man. He might well have said, good on you for having a go, but he would have certainly gone on to say, verse 4, right, from now on, be devoted to praying that when you get an opportunity to speak about Jesus, that you'd speak clearly. Can you imagine how much more effective we'd be if we prayed these two prayers daily? For opportunities to speak about Jesus and for clarity when those opportunities came. Prayer is the secret behind successful Personal work. Well, talking to God about people. Secondly, talking to people about God. uh, Verses 5 and 6. Verse 5. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. See, while prayer is the secret behind successful personal work, it doesn't stop there. We do need to speak about Jesus. I have a friend who is a minister in a church. He was preaching on this sort of subject about praying for people to become Christians. And after the service and through the next couple of weeks, a number of people in the congregation approached him and they said, we've been praying for our relatives and our friends to become Christians. Some of them said they've been praying for years, but these people have never become Christians. And as they kept saying this to him, eventually my friend, the next time somebody said it, he said, uh, well, have you told your friend about Jesus? No, they said. He said, well, how do you expect them to become Christians unless you tell them? You see, it doesn't stop at verses 2 to 4. It's not just pray and then just hope that it's magically going to happen. See, Romans chapter 10 verse 14 says this, how can they call on the one they have not believed in and how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? God's chosen method of reaching people is through people proclaiming the message of Christ. I think this is very important because I think we don't really believe that. We think all we've got to do is pray. Maybe somebody else comes along to speak to our friends, but somebody has to speak to them. Yes, we need to pray or we'll get nowhere, but we do need to speak too. And so verses 5 and 6 are about our approach when we are faced with the questions of everyday life. The questions that are popping up all the time. And there are two sets of complementary qualities in these two verses. Again, i put them on the the sheet for you. Uh, Wisdom and boldness in verse 5 and grace and judgment in verse 6. Firstly, wisdom and boldness. Do you see it there in verse 5? Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Be wise. Make the most of every opportunity. It's a terrific combination, isn't it? See, often when people are newly converted, they are very bold. They rush in where angels fear to tread, but they lack wisdom. Think of some of the earliest conversations I had with my dad shortly after I was converted. My mum and dad were churchgoers. They brought us up to go to church. My brother became a Christian in his last year at university. I became a Christian shortly after that. Mum and dad were churchgoers, but not Christians. And so we were keen, I was as keen as mustard for them to know about Jesus. Well, my mum eventually became a Christian. My dad was hard a harder nut to crack. He is a Christian now, but he was just a churchgoer. And I was desperate that he came to know what I'd come to know. I was keen to tell him as bold as brass in my conversations with him. But I know again and again I pushed it too far. I seriously lacked wisdom. Bold as brass lacked wisdom. I'll tell you my problem now? It's exactly the opposite. Well, I hope it's exactly the opposite. Hopefully, I'm older, I'm wiser now that I'm older, but... The truth is that where age has hopefully brought wisdom, it's also called me off in boldness. And so regularly, I'm not as direct with unbelievers as I could be. This week, after visiting someone, just when I left their house, I was kicking myself, thinking to myself, why didn't you ask them about their relationship with Jesus? See, youth brings boldness, but lacks wisdom. Age brings wisdom, but often boldness disappears. Imagine the person who has both. That's what verse 5 is about. Be wise. Make the most of every opportunity. Or as the ESV puts it, make the best use of the time. The time is short. The events of these last few weeks here in forward should have taught us that. People need to hear about the one for whom they were made. Time is short. Wisdom and boldness, and secondly and finally, grace and judgment. Verse 6. See, verse 6: Let your conversation be full of grace, seasoned with salt. You see, in our evangelism, we are to be full of grace. I think Christians get very nervous when they're told to be bold in evangelism. They imagine they're being asked to be sharp and belligerent, hectoring and harassing people. No, be full of grace, says Paul. It's a great balance, this, isn't it? Be full of, the gospel is full of grace. So both in my method and in my message, both in how I speak and what I say, it is to be full of grace. Again, I've been thinking back this week to times when I've got this so wrong. I'm, I'm so embarrassed to think about it. At a post-ordination training, which uh, happens for the first three years after you're ordained in the Church of England, um, I was in a group of people, most of whom uh, didn't seem to believe the same gospel as me, uh, the same gospel as, as the Bible. Uh, so many in that group were undermining the gospel. And I wanted to stand for the gospel amongst these other clergy who were there. But I look back and I think I really didn't do it very well. Someone who who stood with me, someone who was a a, a faithful, um, Bible-believing fellow who'd also been ordained, said to me after one meeting, he said, I like what you say, but not the way you say it. It's embarrassing, isn't it? See, we lose the argument if we're not gracious. Even if we're right, people won't listen to us. So, verse 6, let your conversation be always full of grace, but let it also be seasoned with salt. Do you see it there, verse 6? Now, at the least, that means that our words should not be bland and insipid. Our words need to have a cutting edge. But I've got a hunch that it means a lot more than that. You can chase this up for yourself when you get home. Salt in the Bible is almost always a mark of judgment. So think of Lot's wife in Genesis chapter 9. She was turned into, do you remember, a pillar of salt. Salt is a mark of judgment. That's what I think may be going on here. We speak with grace and of grace, but we must also tell people of the coming judgment. We mustn't leave people thinking they've got forever because they haven't. We mustn't leave people thinking that God will accept them whatever because God is gracious, you see. No, we must bring in a measure of judgment as well. It's actually when we speak of judgment that grace becomes so amazing. See, with grace and judgment on our lips, then, end of verse 6, we'll know how to answer everyone. Those who need to be encouraged, a word of grace. Those who need to be humbled, a word of judgment. And I think that's wonderfully comprehensive, that word everyone at the end of verse 6. Everyone, because everyone was made for Jesus. So tell everyone. What will we think tomorrow morning when we're wherever we are? Oh, they don't want to know about Jesus. Well, they do want to. They need to. Until they've heard about him, they haven't found life itself. Until they've found him, they haven't found what they were made for. Everyone. Even the most unlikely candidate. I look back to my school days and think, I wonder who would be the most unlikely person who'd become a Christian. I think I might have been in that category. Somebody told me. And isn't it wonderfully natural as well, this verse 6, let your conversation be full of grace and judgment. Your conversation. See, it's what's going on all the time. The conversations you'll have tomorrow at work, uh, in the university halls, uh, with those who you meet with to have coffee, with people at the school gates, with the people that if you're retired you spend time with. Jesus is everything and so in the conversations you're having, he should come up in everything. This whole book has told us Jesus is at the heart of everything. He made everything. Everything was made for him. He made everyday and everyday life. And so it's not difficult to have him part of everyday conversation, is it? And you see, if we really believe that, if we really believe that Jesus is everything, we would tell everyone we met about Jesus. We wouldn't miss an opportunity. We would wake up every day thinking about how can we tell people about Jesus today? And we'd certainly devote ourselves to prayer, praying for opportunities to proclaim Christ, and praying that when those opportunities came, we'd proclaim him clearly. Well, let's pray along those lines right now.